Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word, like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, which by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together. Our Father, we're thankful that we have your truth, that we have your word. We do not have a Bible that contains your word, but that our Bible is your word. It reveals to us the thinking of Christ, according to the Apostle Paul, and that we are to learn to think your thoughts after you. We are to reflect that which is absolute truth, and we are to speak that truth with our neighbor, with one another, that we may be blessed by being reminded of the eternal power of your word and to think in terms of what you have revealed to us. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Ephesians 4.25 today, we pray you would help us to understand the significance and implication of what this verse is, is telling us, that we may conform our thinking to your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have been studying our way through Ephesians chapter 4, and we have come through verse 25, which is, as I have pointed out, very badly translated in most translations. It's in the context of this section in Ephesians, starting in chapter 4, verse 1, that talk about the Christian walk, the Christian life, how we are to think, how we are to live, how we are to talk, and that we are to, as Paul says in verse 1, walk worthy, that is, to live our lives in a way that exemplifies the new high position of our calling. And as I've pointed out, when we take that passage in Ephesians 4.1 and we compare it with what we are taught in verses uh, 17 down through 24, talking about the fact that we have already put off the old man and we have already put on the new man, that part of our responsibility now is that we are to have our thinking renewed. He's saying the same thing in verse 23 as he says in Romans 12, 2. And as part of this, as he has explained the significance of the, of the new man, our new identity in Christ, that, that the new man is the church, the body of Christ, this new building, this new temple that God the Holy Spirit is constructing in this age, then we're going, we're told in this section not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And so that is sort of the big idea, the main idea in these next uh, six, uh, excuse me, eight verses. And actually that goes on into the next chapter. So we have 
as Gentile unbelievers, we put off the old man and we put on the new man. This is just different terminology for what we've always taught in terms of the fact that we are born in Adam. And when we trust in Christ, we are then identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, which is what the baptism by means of the Spirit is all about, so that we are no longer in Adam, we are now in Christ. We have a new identity, we have new assets, we have new capacities, and uh, the same is true for Jewish unbelievers, so that there's only three groups of people, unsaved Gentiles, unsaved Jews, and Christians, the body of Christ, the new man. So on the basis of understanding that new identity and that new position in Christ and that we have a new calling, then there are certain things that flow out of that in terms of application. And verse 25, as it's commonly translated, says, therefore, putting away lying as if we're to put it away. Now, now Colossians 3.10, I believe, is the passage that says, no, we're not to lie to one another. That's, that's a different context and a different concept. This isn't saying that. Uh, so it's mistranslated. And we're to understand it correctly in the way I've translated it here for this reason, because you have already put off. You've already put off the lie. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So in the looking at this uh, word already put off, that is an aorist participle, which means that action precedes the action of the main verb. The main verb is a present tense, so this comes before that. So we already have, it's the same thing we saw uh, back in uh, verse uh, 22 that you have put off, but it's translated in the New King James, again, like it's a present, but it's a past tense form called the aorist tense in Greece, in Greek that you have already put off. And so that's what this is talking about. We put off the lie. At that instant of salvation, we put off, and it's not lying, which is a verbal form with the ing in English. That can be a gerund or it can be a participle, but it is a noun in the Greek. So you don't translate it like it's a verbal idea. It is naming something, and it has the article in front of it. And there's a lot of different nuances to an article in Greek and it is not always uh, specifically focused on that idea of of something uh, definite, but that's its that's its basic idea is to conceptualize something, and in order for us to be able to understand this, and in this particular passage, it has that idea of focusing on uh, specific truth in contrast to the lie, and that we are to speak truth with his neighbor. Now, you may think of neighbor as a word that refers to anybody, as some, and that would include unbelievers, but this is further defined in that explanatory clause for we are members of one another. That's talking about those in the body of Christ. So in this passage, neighbor has that idea of one another, 
in the body of Christ, and we'll talk more about that um, next week. So we are to speak the truth. Well, what exactly is the truth? The truth is that which is derived from and is consistent with the Bible. It's important. Those are linked together by the word and, not the word or. It's from the Bible and it's consistent. Some people think, well, something is biblical if it's, if it's consistent. Well, it may be, but there are a lot of people who claim X, Y, or Z is consistent with the Bible and it really isn't. So we have to be careful with that concept of something being consistent with the scripture. Um, so it's derived from, you, we have to be able to trace it back. And often in theology, what you will find people doing, which is, I'm not delegitimizing it, is the scripture says A, and the scripture says B. So we then say, well, if A is true and B is true, then X has got to be true because it logically derives from A and B. And that's what a lot of theology is. Nowhere will you find a clear and precise doctrinal explanation of the Trinity, for example. There's no place in the Bible that uses the word Trinity. The word Trinity comes from a Latin word, Trinitas, which was coined by a late second century theologian in North Africa by the name of Tertullian. But he understood that the Bible said that God the Father is fully God, God the Son is fully God, and God the Holy Spirit is fully God. And so that indicates three distinct persons, but it also emphasizes the unity of God and the oneness of God. So he put this together in such a way that it would avoid a triism, which is the idea of three gods, and it would avoid a strict Unitarian view of of God. So you have, if A is true, that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are fully God, and B is true, that God is only one, he's a unity, then the logical conclusion from that is the doctrine of the Trinity, and that's great. Then you have someone who comes along and says, well, if D is true and E is true, then Y flows from that. But where you get sticky, and some few theologians have the guts to do this. If they try, they usually end up way out of, out of, out of bounds. But if you have A and B and X is the logical conclusion from A and B, A and B are both true. And if, um, what did I say? D and E are both true. Then Y must be true. Well, if Y is true because it comes from D and E, and X is true because it comes from proposition A and proposition B, then if you then go to the next step and you say that X and Y, there's a conclusion from them which would be Z. So now you're, you're two or three levels away from Scripture. And we've heard theologians that do that and pastors who do that, and that's fine and good. And they'll get up four or five levels in the logic chain from what the scripture says. But if each subsequent, if each foundational proposition is true, 
then the conclusions drawn from that at the first level are also true, and the conclusions at the third level are true, and the conclusions at the next level have to be true. But you have to be able to go from those conclusions up at the third, fourth, or fifth level. You have to be able to trace them logically, rationally, exegetically down to the bottom. Trouble is there's too many who will get that far up, and they sort of cut the anchor to the, to the scripture, and then they just are, are creating just autonomous theology with no absolute, no, no way of tying it back to scripture. But even if you get two or three of those logic levels away from scripture, if everything they're based on is logically consistent based on the scripture, then that's good theology. And there are examples, examples of that. So what we have is that's how what I mean by derived from the Scripture. You can always trace it back, even if it's two, three, or four stages away from the what that what the verse says. If this verse is true, that verse is true, then the proposition you derive from that, the conclusion you derive from that, is also true. And you can that's that's what's called systematic theology. But you have to make sure that your exegetical foundation is rock solid. So the truth is that which is derived from the Scripture and and consistent with the teaching of Scripture. So when it says, let each one of you speak the truth, it's not talking about saying true things to your neighbor. It's talking about talking about doctrine, the Word of God, what is taught in the Scripture. In contrast, you have the lie. The lie is Satan's worldview. It denies foundationally the creator-creature distinction. Now, if um, you haven't been paying attention to what's going on in Judges on Tuesday night, we for the last three lessons, I think it's somewhere around 71, 72, 73, somewhere in there, I've been going through in detail the creator-creature distinction and the contrast between the biblical worldview, which is that the creator is totally and absolutely distinct from his creation, and all pagan systems of thought in one way or another are derived from something uh, that has been called the chain of being or continuity of being, and we've dealt with that in detail. So for those who are listening at some later point, not right now, uh, I make that point so that if you're just listening to the Ephesians series, you can go get a lot more detail from those lessons in uh, in Judges. So we have to understand this creator-creature distinction is fundamental to understanding the Scripture, and it's fundamental for understanding uh, the biblical worldview. And in the devil's worldview, where you deny the creator-creature distinction, and that can take place in numerous forms, in numerous shapes, it always emphasizes the autonomy or the independence of the creature, that the creature's thinking is not to be dependent upon the existence of an objective creator that is as radically distinct from his creation as the God of the Bible, who there is none like him. That phrase or something similar to it is said again and again in the Old Testament. So when you deny the creator-creature distinction, you are, in fact, claiming that you can come to truth independently of God's revelation. You don't need it. 
your reason is good enough or your experience is good enough or your feelings are good enough to let you know what absolute truth is. You don't need some God talking to you and telling you. But if you're a creature, you have limited knowledge. And even if you reject the fact that there is a an infinite God, you still have to recognize that human beings have extremely limited finite knowledge. And so the only way we can truly understand reality is to go to the one who made us, to the creator. But when we assert our independence from God, what goes hand in hand with this is a hostility toward God because we really can't be independent of God because God rules over his creation. So that always creates a hostility toward God. So you have antagonism toward God and autonomy. There's a little alliteration there to help remember uh, those aspects. So we have to address the question, what is the origin of truth? And Scripture tells us that God is truth. We have passages such as Psalm 86, 15, uh, but you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious. When we have that phrase, full of something in relation to God, this is an idiom saying that this is something that uh, fills God. It, it, it describes who he is. He is a God of compassion and grace, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. So there you have three attributes of God that are all part of, of God, so and and exemplified in God, and creatures just have sort of a derivative, finite form of those attributes if they have them at all. Psalm eighty nine fourteen says, "Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne; mercy and truth go before your face." So this idea is that God's reign over His creation is a is filled with righteousness and truth. There's no unrighteousness with God. Uh, God is not a man that he should lie, Scripture says, or that he should change his mind. So therefore, we can trust in God fully. Psalm uh, 100 verse 5 says, For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. So what we're talking about when we talk about speaking truth with our neighbor is that this truth is that which derives from God because God is absolute truth. So truth, therefore, is eternal. It is the thinking of God, and since God is omniscient, he has always thought these things and always known these things, and he is the one who ultimately determines, defines, and describes what truth is, what reality is. And in sin, what we want to do is redefine reality. Now, there are some people who redefine reality, and it's still pretty close to reality. A lot of believers do that. But then we see in a culture that completely slips the anchor away from God and away from his revelation that you end up in our modern worldview of postmodernism, which is that the creature can make up his own reality. And so you can wake up one morning and you're a man, and but you're biologically a female. Wake up the next morning and you're neither male nor female. You're something else. And now they have way north of 72 different genders. And, that, and, and gender itself, we need to surgically 
excise that word from our vocabulary unless we're talking about grammar. Satan loves to use and abuse and misuse language. And the word gender historically was a grammar term. Then it started to be used to describe uh, a person's sex, which is something that is biologically grounded. And then it gradually morphed so that it could refer to a person's psychological uh, understanding of who he was that has absolutely nothing to do with the reality of their biology. So we need to be careful with these terms because when you use the word gender as a synonym for somebody's biological sex, then you that word is now loaded with a lot of postmodern relativistic baggage. And so we ought not use it. Another word that I'm trying to get rid of is nature. That has a lot of baggage that I don't want to claim as well. We should talk about God's creation. For example, when I was in Africa, we learned a lot about God's creation. We got to see it, and we got to see all of these different animals God created. But they didn't get there by some autonomous nature. They got there because of God's specific design. So we need to be careful how we use words. What often happens when we say, oh, I believe God is righteous or God is just or God is um, love is that we have an autonomous ideal that we're appealing to. We've already defined what love is. We've already defined what justice is. We've already defined what righteousness is. And we set that up as some sort of independent autonomous standard. And then when we say God is righteous, what a person that you're talking to, let's say they're an unbeliever, you're talking to them, they say, oh, yeah, I believe God is just. Well, what, you, we have to ask the question, well, what do you mean by just? Because what they're saying is I have this concept of justice. It's social justice, It's infor- and it's really informed by Marxism and a lot of relativism, and my belief is that God conforms to that. But that's not what the Bible says. So, But that's the way most people think is when they think God, oh, God is fair. I don't know anywhere in Scripture where it says that. Fair is an ambiguous word. It has a lot of baggage to it. And what they mean is they've got this concept of what fairness should be that exists as some sort of autonomous ideal. And so when they say that, they're putting God into their definition and not letting God himself define things. And this is what Scripture says, is that God is truth. God is righteousness. God is justice and love and holy. And the only way we can see what those terms mean is to look at what God does and look at his acts in history because what he does is righteous. As God is on the cusp of bringing judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, he and two angels and I believe this is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, come to visit Abraham. And Abraham prepares a feast for them. And while he has, after they've eaten and they have rested, there's a conversation that God has, I think, with the with these two angels. 
And he says, should I tell Abraham what I am fixing to do? See, God is really a Texan. What, what am I fixing to do? Well, what he was fixing to do was to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he says that he's going to tell Abraham because Abraham's nephew Lot is in Sodom. And God knows that what will happen if he tells Abraham what he's about to do and if he doesn't tell Abraham what he is about to do. So he informs Abraham because he knows what Abraham's response will be. And Abraham is going to um, implore God to deliver so, uh, deliver Lot and his family. And so he has an interesting conversation with God. He says, well, Lord, would you destroy Sodom if there were a hundred righteous people there? And God says, no. Well, would you still destroy Sodom if there were 50? And he works his way down because he wants to get to that point where, okay, there's seven or eight in Lot's family. Would you destroy it if those, if those are there? And God is saying, you know, I won't because uh, of those who are righteous who are there. Now, there's one thing we need to understand about this because we know that Lot's decision to take and move to Sodom was not made with the intent of glorifying God, that he is attracted to the culture of Sodom, but it is something that really causes him a lot of internal anguish as he observes their uh, pagan, perverse uh, practices. And we're told in Second Peter that he is righteous lot, now, he's not righteous because he's thinking biblically or acting biblically. He's righteous because he's believed the same thing Abraham has believed, and God has declared him righteous. But his thinking and his behavior is pretty carnal. But because he and his fam immediate family are believers, even though they're carnal, disobedient, rebellious believers, God is willing to bless the rest of Sodom by delivering them. But instead what God does is he sends the angels there to tell Lot and his family that they need to leave and not look back. And so uh, the husbands of his daughters uh, don't want to leave, so they stay there, and Lot and his daughters and his wife leave, but his wife, oh, She's torn, so she has to turn around and look back, and God said, don't do that. So she's turned into a pillar of salt. Now, a lot of people today would use their concept of fairness and justice, and they would say, that's not fair of God. That is not, and so you'll have a lot of people, a lot of liberal theologians over the years have said, well, this is an example of this harsh, harshness of God in the Old Testament. That's an example of God's grace. He delivered those who were, who, who were saved. He gave them fair warning, gave them enough information. But what's important is to go back and think about a statement that Abraham makes before he begins to negotiate with God. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That is a profound statement. He, he make, it, it's a, it's a, rhetorical question that expects a positive response. Yes, 
he who is the judge of all the earth, because he knows all the facts, he's omniscient, because he is a God who is love and a God who is righteous and knows all the facts, he will make the right decision. So that when we say, well, God is just and God is righteous, he exhibits what that justice and righteousness looks like. We don't have an autonomous, independent concept of what righteousness and justice is, and then we try to conform God to that. that that's what, how most people think. So we see that God is the, the one who defines all of these attributes, and we go to God and, what he, and his acts in history to understand what they mean. Now we get to the gospel... In John chapter 1, John uses the term logos, the word, to describe Jesus. He says, and the word, that is the eternal logos, the one who uh, was with God and the one who was God from the beginning and the one from whom all things derive, he created all things and nothing that was created was created without him. He said, this one, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, not that effulgence of the bright light associated with the Shekinah, the Shekinah dwelling of God in the temple, but it's seen in all of his miracles in John. John has eight signs. The eighth sign is the resurrection. But the first sign is changing the water into wine. Most people didn't even know anything special happened. But that, we're told, exhibited the glory of God. So it's its attributes, it's its character that John's talking about here. We beheld his glory, that is, his essence. Uh, the glory is of, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So he identifies truth as inherent to Christ. Jesus is truth. John 1.16, and of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. So this concept of full of grace and truth is the same thing we saw uh, earlier when we see the phrase full of compassion and graciousness, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth back in Psalm 86.15. It's a Semiticism, a, a Hebrew idiom for describing somebody's character. And of that fullness, that is his grace and truth, we've all received and grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth in a unique and distinct way is now coming through Jesus Christ. But all these passages assume that there is absolute eternal truth, that which is true for every person in every country, in every culture of every decade of the history of the world. It is not true for some and not true for others. It is absolute eternal truth that is always true no matter what the circumstances are. So that's the problem today because we live in a split culture. We live in a culture where if you're probably older than 50, you have a lot of modernistic, modern, your, your worldview is modern. Okay, that's the thing. You have, you're influenced more by modernism than postmodernism. But we, but those younger than 40 probably think primarily as postmodern, but they have a little bit of both, depending on the person, their background, and uh, their their uh, parental training. So we we're going to get to that because that's a primary manifestation. Both of those are primary manifestations of the lie today. 
So the lie is grounded on a rejection of the creator creature or creator creation. I think creation is a better word to describe the word used in Romans because they worship inanimate, inanimate creation as well as animate creatures. And this began with the fall of the Hebrew is Halel bin Shekhar. That is the name for it was translated as Lucifer in the Vulgate, but it's that's a bad translation. It is the uh, the bright shining star, the sun of the dawn. And in Isaiah fourteen thirteen, we see what the essence of his sin is. He has said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. He is denying the creator-creature distinction. He is a creature, but he wants to elevate himself over the creator. So at the essence of this sin is a denial of the creator-creature distinction. It is also uh, an expression of his arrogance. The five I wills express the height of creaturely arrogance. Satan's fall is also described in Isaiah chapter uh, 28, uh, verses 12 and following. But at the heart of that, in 15 through 17, we read God saying, this is God condemning, judging Satan. You were perfect in your ways. What God created was perfect, flawless. This is without sin, without unrighteousness. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. Notice that emphasis. He's a creature. He is not the creator. He is finite. He is not infinite. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Sin is to fall short of God's standards. It's to miss the mark, literally. It's to fall short of the standard. And you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub. So that tells us that before his fall, Lucifer was of the highest order of angels. He was a cherub. From the midst of the fiery stones, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze upon you. So there is judgment. That is the actions of the righteousness of God. So here we have the example of arrogance. Arrogance begins with self-absorption. We are focused on what we want, not what someone else or God wants. That leads to self-indulgence. We spoil ourselves and we indulge our own sinful desires as much as we can. And then we justify it. We give reasons for why this really isn't sinful. This is good. This is the right thing to do. And self-justification now leads to self-deception. Satan was completely self-deceived, and that leads to self-deification. Now, I'm adding something new. At the core of all this is self-love. There is no creature that had a better self-image than Satan. Self-image is not the issue ever. 
Scripture never talks about it. Self-love is the inherent manifestation of our fallen sin nature. And Satan manifests that. No one loves Satan more than he does. So the lie is grounded on a rejection of the creator-creature or creator-creation distinction. No matter what you do with alternative worldviews, it always boils down to a denial of the creator-creature distinction. That's the, the foundation of the lie. Now, in John 8.44, which is a tremendous chapter, and I'm just not going to take the time to go through all of it, but Jesus is in a confrontation with the Pharisees. Sometimes people get confused because there's a crowd there, and Jesus has been talking to the crowd, but the Pharisees are up front and center, and he then shifts gears, and he addresses them. He says, you are of your father the devil. Now, they are the conservative religious party in Israel. They think they are the ones that have truly and accurately interpreted the law of Moses, and they are... Uh, as cl- one reason there's such a clash between Jesus and the Pharisees is they are the closest to biblical accuracy of any group, and they are the ones that more than anyone else ought to recognize who Jesus is and accept him as the Messiah. But because they have bought into legalism and arrogance, they are completely blind to the truth. And he says, you are of your father the devil, And, of course, they're going to debate that and say, no, we're of our father Abraham. So Jesus is really skewering this. He he has not read Carnegie's book on how to win friends and influence people. Here we see something of the divine viewpoint on how to deal with confrontation. Now, Jesus doesn't deal with everybody this way, but he does deal with the Pharisees this way because he is not going to be twisted into confrontation into validating any of their presuppositions. So he confronts them in a very abrupt manner and says, you're of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. Then he tells us about the devil. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. So the lie, the truth originates with God. The lie originates with with Satan. Now, one of the things about this that we need to understand is that that as we talk about this contrast between the truth and the lie, we need to understand the hostility that exists among those of the lie versus people of the truth. Ken Ham, in his book, uh, The Lie, uh, it's now in a second edition. We have the first edition back, at, which came out 25 years ago, I think, and that's back in the library. Uh, he gives an illustration, and many of us could give this same illustration. And he says, at one lecture I gave, a person said to me in an angry tone, this is not fair. You're insisting that we take Genesis literally, that God actually took six days, that evolution is not true, and that there really was a worldwide flood. 
You are being intolerant. Notice that. You are being intolerant of other people's views. You must show tolerance for people like me who believe God used evolution and that Genesis is only symbolic. See, this is the people of the light say, oh, you have to tolerate us. Do they return that? That's the question. So Ham says, I then asked, well, what do you want me to do? And the person replied, you must allow other views and be tolerant of opinions different from yours. Well, I said, my view is that the literal interpretation of Genesis is the right view. All other views concerning God or concerning Genesis are wrong. Will you tolerate my view? The person looked shocked, and he hesitated. I could almost hear him thinking. If I say yes, then I've allowed him to say, you can't have another view such as mine. If I say no, then I've obviously been intolerant of his view. What do I do? He then looked at me and said, that's semantics. See, that's what the other side says. Oh, you're just playing word games. What he really meant was that he had lost the argument and did not want to admit his intolerance of my position. The fact is he had taken a dogmatic, closed-minded position. Occasionally, people are upset when dogmatic statements are made. They say, you cannot be dogmatic like that. This, in itself, is a dogmatic statement. Many think that some people are dogmatic and others are not. It's not a matter of whether you are dogmatic or not, but which dogma is the best dogma to be dogmatized. Now, the problem here is one that many other people have have noted, I remember having Dave Hunt speak at my church in, in Irving uh, about 30-plus years ago, and he phrased it this way. He said, why is it that you believe that you can define tolerance as allowing people to believe whatever they want and respecting that, but you won't allow Christians to believe that there is only one way to God? You call that intolerant. Since you're, since you're basically claiming your way is the only way, Dave said, what justifies your intolerance of Christianity? See, what this, this doctrine of intolerance that has surfaced in our culture over the last 40 or so years is really a product of postmodernism. And it ultimately goes all the way back to a creator-creature distinction. I'm not going to take all the time to do that. But in a great book, if you want to learn something about postmodernism, I recommend it. It's called The Death of Truth by Dennis McCallum. There was a copy in the library, and I haven't been able to find it recently, but it seems like I'll find a book back there. I know where it is. And I run into it five or six times, and then I need it, and I go back there to find it, and it's not there. But that happens. So um, anyway, in their book, they write, postmodernists argue that those they label fundamentalists are unacceptable because they subscribe to universal truth claims, what postmodern thinkers call meta-narratives. So if you're not familiar with that, a narrative is a story. A meta-narrative is a broad, huge story that explains everything about reality. So the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is a meta-narrative. Postmodernists reject meta-narratives, that each culture has their own narrative, and all cultural narratives are of equal value, 
whether you're talking about a culture that uh, sacrifices infants or whether you're talking about a, a 19th century elevated European culture based on the word of God, in their view, all are of equal value. That's called multiculturalism. And so they uh, argue that there's one group that you can't really justify, and these are are, are postmodernists. And um, so they there is an exception to how they use the word fundamentalist. What they mean is fundamentalist Christians. They don't seem to apply this to fundamentalist Muslims. <clears throat> So it's a kind of ironic because recently, as when we came back from Africa, we flew through Newark. And what impressed me negatively about going through the uh, TSA security in Newark was the large number of Muslim women wearing hijabs and or head coverings. Now, to for a woman to wear a head covering and a hijab in Islam, you have to be deeply, profoundly committed to the truth of the Quran, which says that they're right, everybody else is wrong, and and they ought to kill everybody who doesn't become part of the house of Islam, the house of peace. Islam is a piece of religion only for those who are in the house of peace. Everybody else is in the house of war, and you can treat them however you want. But it seems like postmodernists, never apply this concept of fundamentalism to Islamicists. They only apply it to Christians. So anyway, they go on to say, meta-narratives are overarching explanations of reality based on, on central organizing truths. Those who believe in universal explanations for reality are considered to be t- uh, totalistic or logocentric, that is, word-centered. Isn't that an ironic term? For as believers, we are word-centered. In the beginning was the word. Logocentric in their thinking. Instead, postmodernists believe each group tells its own story or narrative, their own understanding of reality, understandings that others should never discount, exclude, or marginalize, because if you do, you're intolerant. Totalistic thinking such as fundamentalists want their story to dominate all other stories. So therefore, we are uh, intolerant. So the only people that can be intolerant of somebody else are postmodernists and intolerant of Christianity. In 1 John 2.21 and 1 John 2.27 John, in his epistles, talks about the truth. He says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Every writer of the scripture believes there is an absolute truth that is being revealed in the scripture. So we go back to the foundation of the temptation by the serpent in Genesis 3.1, Now the serpent was made more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God really said? See, he forms a rhetorical question to imply that God was wrong. So he's getting her thinking off track in a very subtle manner. Has God really said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. 
For God knows that in the days you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, this is his lie. He is the father of lies, and he is subtly putting her in a position of judging whether God is right or wrong. To judge God, you have to be over God. So he's denying the creator-creature distinction. I've always loved this cover that Moody Monthly had back in, I believe it was around 87 or 88, where the focus, uh, the theme of this issue was on the new age. And so they had the cover of a apple that looks all nice and red and and succulent on the outside, but on the inside, it's black and rotten. And the title is New Age, Old Lie. Same thing, postmodernism, modernism, they're all different manifestations of the same lie, which is that the creature can be in charge of determining the rightness and wrongness of the creator. So the second point in this is that the creator-creature distinction rejects divine authority in place of creaturely authority. This is what Paul explains in Romans 1, 21 to 25. He says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the corruptible, uh, changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Same phrase that we have in Ephesians. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Notice the assumption there is one universal truth and there is uh, in contrast, one universal lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than cr- the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So what is the lie? First, it's grounded on a rejection of the creator, creature, or creator-creation distinction. Second, it rejects divine authority in place of creaturely authority, autonomy and independence from God and arrogance. Third, it has, expresses hostility or antagonism toward God. That is the lie. It undergirds every world view. Now, there are contemporary forms of the lie that, and I've borrowed this slide, used it from the interlocked series that Amos and Jan Kwok have put together. You can go, it's not interlocked.com, it's interlocked.com. What is it, Barb? Inter- online. Interlocked.online. We've got to fix that slide. Interlocked.ed.online. And they have a great chapter on the creator-creature distinction, and they use these examples. That if you use words like luck, karma, or the universe, then you're buying into that, that the universe is wouldn't let me do this, or the universe you know, brought these problems in my life. Uh, that's very similar to karma. There's something impersonal out there that is omniscient, that uh, always balances out things in some way or another, or the idea of luck. These are all pagan ideas. They're not biblical ideas. Also, you hear people talk about, oh, I want to have positive energy. 
I have certain phrases I use to describe that. I, I don't understand this, but it, it, it flows. It's like the force in Star Wars. Uh, you have people you, you know, buy into horoscopes and astrology. All of this are just simply manifestations of people who are trying to find some level of order and control in a way of thinking that is totally irrational. To believe that if you just give something enough time and you have random chance that somehow with billions and billions and billions of years at on the principle of chance that somehow order will come out of chaos. That's irrational. People who believe that are fundamentally irrational. And that's the problem. We have moved from an era of rationality under modernism to an era of irrationality, but irrationality was already present in rationality, in the rationality of modernism. And so we have this inherent problem today, and irrationality is going to lead to chaos. And when people's souls are governed by irrationality, then their lives are going to be governed by disorder and chaos. There's an excellent discussion about that in the opening chapter of Russell Kirk's book, The Foundation of American Order. We talk about the importance of order all the time, and we don't really flesh it out in our thinking when we talk about law and order. Order is necessary in order to have prosperity, in order to have uh, stability, in order to have productivity. All of this is generated on the concept of order. And what happens when we yield to the, the uh, irrationality of postmodernism, then it leads to disorder and chaos and the collapse of a culture. That is why I've been, we've been in Judges on Tuesday night. And I've subtitled that series, When Chaos Was King. And the key verse in Judges is that there was no king, that is, God had been excluded from their thinking. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it led to a complete chaos and breakdown of that civilization. So the lie is built on Genesis 3. And we'll have to stop here, and we'll come back to discuss this some more next time to ground our thinking a little better in understanding this creator-creature distinction and the distinction between the truth and the lie. For Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. So this grounds us in God. There is truth. There is one truth. There is God's truth. And he has revealed it in the scriptures. So to align ourselves with the truth, we have to learn it. We have to let the word of God completely saturate our thinking because we live in a world that is increasingly hostile to the concept of the truth. And it's one of the, and the way they reject it is, through a distorted use of logic, an ironic use of logic, because they reject logic as a means to an end, and yet they use logic to get to the end that there is no truth. But if there is no truth, is that statement, there is no truth, true? So we have to come back and explore this a little more next week. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that there is truth. 
It is embodied in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it was exemplified by our Savior who was full of grace and truth and, in fact, said that he is the truth and that no one can come to the Father except by him. Father, we pray that we might come to understand the significance of what Jesus says and an understanding of the importance for us of operating not on the values of the worldview around us, but that we may stand firm on the rock of your truth. Father, we pray that anyone listening today or anyone here or anyone who may listen to this in the future, that they may understand that this truth cannot be rejected. To reject the truth about Jesus is to make the most irrational decision, which will lead only to eternal punishment and eternal condemnation that Jesus is the only way to you. Jesus is the absolute truth, and his life and his sayings do not exemplify someone who was either irrational or living as a um, someone divorced from reality. So, Father, we pray that you would enlighten the minds of those who listen, that they may clearly understand the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried and that he rose again, and that it is only by faith in Jesus Christ that we can have everlasting life, that this is so important. This is the most important decision anyone can make, for it determines not just the rest of our life on this planet, but our destiny for eternity. And we pray that you would open their eyes to the truth. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.